One of the most damaging untruths that's come to be widely accepted within much of the modern church is what I would call easy believism. What is easy believism? It's the idea that being a Christian is easy. Being a Christian means believing in Jesus and that's it. So you heard the good news about forgiveness through Jesus, eternal life through Jesus, and you said at some point, I accept that. Maybe you responded to an altar call at a church service. Maybe you prayed a prayer to accept Jesus with a Sunday school teacher or a youth minister. Or with the help of your parents one night when you were afraid of hell. Easy believism says if you've done that, you're good and you're a Christian. As long as it was genuine, you're good. No matter if you don't live for the Lord after that, you're good. You've believed in Jesus, and so you're good. Now, there are various reasons why this is really bad. But one in particular is that it gives the false impression that how you live doesn't impact your eternal destiny. Easy believism gives the false impression that you can live however and still go to heaven. Brothers and sisters, what I want to persuade you of this morning is that nothing could be further from the truth. Paul's word to professing believers this morning is this. We must heed God's warnings And flee idolatry, lest we fall away from faith and be damned. It's a sober word this morning. Would you open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10? Can I refresh you on some context? The big context is that in the first four chapters, Paul lays the gospel foundation. The Corinthian church had gotten off course because they were building their lives on the wisdom of the world. And in the first four chapters, Paul comes in with a big old theological jackhammer and he goes to work and he says, the only foundation you can build your life on is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, after he laid that foundation and let the concrete set, he goes on to show what life built on that right foundation is going to look like. And we're in a section that runs from chapter 8 to chapter 10, and the big idea is that it should be one like this. Christians should limit our freedoms for others. Now, let me just put some flesh on that word freedoms for just a second. Jumping back into chapter 8, under certain circumstances, the Corinthian Christians are free to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols because in reality there is no such thing as an idol. There, there really is not. There's, there's really only one true God and so even though the pagans think they've sacrificed meat to something, that something is really nothing. It's 
just a piece of meat. And so under certain circumstances, Christians can eat it. That's what Paul says in 8. However, Paul also says, if your brother in Christ doesn't have that same clarity, and he thinks it's still wrong to eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol, and he sees you do it, and he's emboldened to do it himself, then you've led your brother into sin. In that scenario, Paul says... You need to limit your freedom and not eat meat. Why? Because you want to do what's best for your brother in Christ. That principle actually becomes the main overarching point of 8 through 10. If you're sitting here, if you're new, if you haven't been with us in these sermons and you're like eating meat offered to idols... Uh, I just invite you to listen to the last couple of sermons. It'll make sense. But you don't have to listen to them to benefit from what I'm about to say now. So just follow me. That principle actually becomes the main overarching point in 8 through 10. As a Christian, you want to live your life, make your decisions, order your priorities based not off of whatever you're free to do in Christ based off what would be most spiritually helpful to the body of Christ, the church. So you see this in Paul's example of himself in chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Do I not have the right to have a wife, be financially supported? He's got all sorts of freedoms. He's got all sorts of rights that he doesn't make use of. Why? Because he wants to see the gospel go forth in the lives of those he's ministering to. He's not motivated based on what he wants. He's motivated on the mission of gospel progress. So the gospel calls us to limit our freedoms out of love for others. But there's another reason to limit your freedoms. It's to avoid falling away. Pick up with me, if you would, in chapter 9, verse 24. That's on page 957 in the Blue Bibles. These verses are a hinge into our text this morning, and it's going to help us if we read them together. So page 957 in the Blue Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Christian life is like a race, run to win. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to obtain a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. There are freedoms athletes don't make use of in order to win. Now, they restrict themselves for the prize of of a gold medal or a Super Bowl trophy. We do it for the prize of eternal life. Go Chiefs, by the way. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Why does Paul say we should limit our freedoms? Why does Paul limit his? Because he doesn't want to come up short of the prize of eternal life. He doesn't want to be disqualified. 
What does that mean? Disqualified. It means not going to heaven. So what we have here, please follow me, is the introduction of an uncomfortable truth. Disqualification, not entering heaven, is a real possibility for professing believers. Now that might make you say, hold on just a second, I have lots of questions. Well, I think the Apostle Paul anticipates that, both from you and the Corinthian church. And so before we get too far ahead of ourselves, or before we try to take the pressure off or theologize this away, or see if this contradicts with eternal security, let's just let Paul speak, okay? Let's let Paul take this where he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sees fit to take it. And here's where he takes it. He wants you to take heed lest you fall away. That's the whole burden of the text this morning. Take heed lest you fall away. And the first thing you have to grapple with is the fact that there is a real danger of falling away. That's what 1 through 13 in chapter 10 is all about. Let's read it. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that all our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. We need to remember Israel. Israel was redeemed from Egypt, led by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Israel was baptized into Moses. Israel ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink in the wilderness. And all of these things anticipate the church. The church has been redeemed from sin and led by the Holy Spirit. The church has been baptized into Jesus Christ. The church eats and drinks spiritual food and drink in the Lord's Supper. Paul points out that Israel is the visible people of God who follow Christ. Yet, God was not pleased with most of them. God laid Israel low in the wilderness because of their idolatrous sin, which the next verses are going to describe for us. He judged them and they died. And this anticipates judgment for us if we follow in their steps. Paul wants us to connect dots here. Please follow me. If they were redeemed, if they were baptized, if they ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink and they died, then it can happen to you. You can appear to be redeemed. You can be baptized. You can eat and drink at the Lord's table on Sunday morning and yet miss out on eating and drinking at the table in heaven. Now maybe you're like, BJ, are you sure that's the lesson here for us? Yes, I'm quite sure that's the lesson here for us. Look at verse 6. 
Now these things took place as examples for us. This wasn't written down just for history's sake. It was written down for us, for our benefit. Why? That we might not desire evil as they did. Their evil cravings ultimately sent them to hell and ours will too. He gets specific about how their cravings played out. Do not be idolaters. As some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In Exodus, when Moses was on the mountain for 40 days, the people of Israel got restless. They had Aaron fashion a golden calf and they worshipped it and they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And they had a big old party. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. The story behind this is actually incredible. There was a false prophet. His name was Balaam. He was asked by this king named Balak to curse Israel. He didn't curse Israel because he couldn't curse Israel. But he advised the king and he said, Hey, if you can just get Israel to sin sexually, and you can get them to walk away from God, and then Israel's no threat to you anymore. That's exactly what happened. Numbers 25 says, Israel began to whore after the daughters of Moab. And after that, they ended up joining them in the worship of false gods. And God brought a plague of judgment in response. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. And were destroyed by serpents. When the going got tough along the journey to Canaan, the people of Israel became impatient. Numbers Numbers 21 tells us, They spoke against God and they spoke against Moses and they said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food, God's provision of manna. What are they doing here? A, thinking poorly of God as though He doesn't care for them, as though He doesn't take care of them. B, despising God's simple provision for them along the way. And then C, demanding that God give them what they want. Different food. You got to give it to me. This is not submission to the good ways of God. This is arrogance. And let me just tell you, you must be alert to thoughts in your heart or expressions on your lips that say anything like, you know, If God really loved me, then this wouldn't happen. Or this would happen. Or you know what, God? You need to make this happen for me. If you're good, you got to show me. Just full stop on this point. He's already shown you He's good. He gave His Son for you. You saying or thinking anything like that is more revealing of your heart not God's. And it may reveal a heart that doesn't even know Him savingly. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
When they got to the brink of the land, frightened by the prospect of their enemies in Canaan, they lost heart, they grumbled, they turned back. Forget what God says, we're going to go back to Egypt to our old way of life. God judged them. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages has come. By the way, we are in the last days. According to the Bible, the last days began when Jesus poured out His Holy Spirit on His church at Pentecost. That, biblically speaking, ushered in the last days. I say that because some traditions, well-meaning, tend to read the Bible, specifically Revelation, like a decoder ring for current events. Don't do that. That's not how the Bible's designed to be read. Are we in the last days? Yes, we are. And we've been in them for about 2,000 years now. Jesus will come back soon. And these things are our example while we wait. Mm. Don't crave evil as they did. And think about, think about what's named in this list. There's big sin, bowing down to a golden calf, sexual immorality, but there's seemingly little sin, like just putting Christ to the test in your heart or grumbling with your lips. And all of this is written down for us. Why? Verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he Listen to me, believer. There is a real danger of falling away. That's the whole point of verses 1 through 13. Do you think you stand? Do you name the name of Christ? Have you been baptized? Do you partake of the Lord's Supper? Beware, take heed, lest you fall. Now that may unsettle you. Maybe you think, how how do I know if I can make it? How, How do I know I won't give way like Israel of old? Paul immediately moves in to reassure you. No temptation has taken you but that which is common to man. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape you may be able to endure it. God is faithful. Dear believer, the Lord will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. Write that down. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. You may feel tempted beyond your ability, but as sure as the Word of God is true, you will never be tempted beyond your ability. God will provide a way of escape. The real question is, will you take the way of escape? Will you turn to Him in temptation? Will you commit yourself to Him in the moment of trial? Will you put all your eggs in the basket of faithfulness and obedience to Jesus Christ, no matter what? If you have that kind of heart, And you have nothing to fear because God will keep you. 
And part of the way that he will keep you is through responding to Paul's concluding command that begins in the very next verse. Therefore, my beloved, based on all that I've said, flee from idolatry. Can I just say that's the most sensible thing in the world? I mean, given the example of Israel, given the cravings of their heart, given the cravings of your heart, if you're being honest with yourself, it's the most sensible thing in the world to say, flee from idolatry. That's why Paul immediately says, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. This is just common sense. Now here, I, I want to remind you that Paul speaks to a specific audience, the Corinthian church. He speaks to a specific audience with specific problems. And they're in danger of falling away from a specific form of idolatry that Paul now wants to address. And this may feel a little bit technical, so please follow me. Look at verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Let me just pause for a second. This is some beautiful stuff here. But I want to make sure you understand it in context. What Paul establishes here is that in the context of Christian worship, when we come together on the Lord's Day as Christians have for 2,000 years, and when we take of the bread and of the cup in the Lord's Supper, more is going on than just eating a bite of bread and taking a sip of juice or wine. There is real participation with Jesus Christ. This is mysterious. I don't think I can even put words to it for you. But what I know is that based upon the authority of Scripture, when we eat and drink at the Lord's table in the context of Christian worship, there is real spiritual participation, fellowship with Jesus Christ. It is more than eating and drinking. We are sharing in the blessings secured through His death, burial, and resurrection. And the same is true of those who ate the sacrifices in the context of Old Testament temple worship. Look at verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices participants at the altar? So when the people of Israel made sacrifices as part of the temple worship under the Old Covenant, some of that meat would be eaten. And Paul says that those who enjoyed that meat and ate of it Enjoy that same spiritual participation, that same fellowship with God through sacrifices that pointed to Christ. Now, why is he bringing this up? Because the Corinthians think that they have freedom to eat meat offered to idols as part of pagan religious worship. And Paul says, that dog ain't going to hunt, okay? Just as taking the Lord's Supper in the context of Christian worship is spiritual participation with Christ, just as eating sacrificial meat in the context of Israel's worship is spiritual participation with Christ, 
so too eating sacrificial meat in the context of pagan worship is spiritual participation with demons. Look at verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. Let me just back up a step, translate for you. It is still the case that there is no such thing as an idol. There really is only one God. Idols are lifeless pieces of wood and stone. However, there is demonic influence over and above them that is mysterious and true. So, based upon that, to eat meat offered to idols in the context of pagan worship... That is spiritual participation with demons. Bread and wine in the context of Christian worship is spiritual participation with Christ. Meat in the context of pagan worship is spiritual participation with demons. And so verse 20, I do not want you to participate with demons. Well, that makes sense. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than Him? You see, the Corinthians... Honestly, the Corinthians were just a little loosey-goosey. They were all about their freedoms in Christ. But unknowingly and unthinkingly, they were actually giving themselves over to outright idolatry. And and Paul knows this, and he knows this will be to their eternal ruin, and hence spills the ink of 1 through 22 to bring them round and say, Guys, you are in danger of falling away. Take heed. But what do we do with this? How do we take heed? So some of this is just really culturally removed from us. Praise God, I've never had to warn any of you to stop going to pagan religious worship services. Thank you. You make my job easier as a pastor. But that doesn't mean this doesn't apply to us. How do we take heed? I want you to zone in. Believer number one, make sure you're taking heed to all. All God's warnings. Brothers and sisters, do you really take it to heart? Ask yourself, do you really take it to heart whenever Scripture warns you? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them 
will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. That's Jesus in Matthew 7. Do you heed those words? Do they land on you? Do you take them to heart? So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's Paul in Romans 8. Do you heed those words? Do they land on you? Do you take them to heart? I could read more, many more. I've got more printed for you in the bulletin that you could read this afternoon and reflect on. The point is, when God warns you, do you receive it for what it is, a warning to you? Or do you theologize it away? Well, that must be for those who haven't believed in Jesus. Listen, the first way to take heed of this warning this morning is to settle it in your heart that when God issues a warning to you, you are going to listen. You are going to receive it. You are going to respond in faithful obedience. Let me take a second just to shed a little bit of light on this. Maybe one tension that's in your mind right now about the whole text and everything I'm saying is this. Does this mean I can lose my salvation? Maybe that's a big question on your mind. Let me answer it. The answer is no. No. You cannot lose your salvation. If you are saved, you will remain saved and you will persevere to the end. Well, then what in the world are you talking to me about, BJ? If you can't lose your salvation, why are we being warned like this? Maybe that's the second question you're asking. Warnings in Scripture, like this one this morning, and like Matthew 7 and like Romans 8, they function as part of the way God keeps you and perseveres you unto the end. It's as simple as this. Think about warnings in Scripture like this. They're like a dad who calls his five-year-old back from the road when the car is coming. By listening to the father's voice, The five-year-old is kept safe. So it is for us. When God warns us, we listen, we heed, we obey. And in doing so, we are kept spiritually safe until the last day. Let me also say this. If a brother or a sister doesn't heed the warnings of Scripture, if they fall away, then what that means is that that one was never truly saved in the first place. They may have thought they were. They may have appeared to be saved. But they weren't. Speaking of those who've abandoned the faith, 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. They went out. It might become plain that they are not all of us. 
Please hear me. The mark of whether or not you're a Christian is not primarily your profession of faith. It is your life of obedience to the word of God. Someone say amen. So what does it mean? It means we need to take heed. We need to hear this text and we need to say, Oh God, I want to take heed. So let me get a little bit more specific based on this text, brothers and sisters. Based on this text, you need to take heed by defining idolatry as evil heart cravings. Do not define idolatry as only bowing down to some false god or graven images. Idolatry takes place at the level of heart desires. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3. Don't turn there, just listen, and I'm going to just bring out one point. In Colossians 3, Paul says, Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul defines covetousness, which is a desire. It's not an outward action. He defines covetousness, that desire, as idolatry. What that means is that we can be guilty of idolatry without even an outward action. Oh, how I wish that idolatry were simply a matter of you or I not bowing down to an image. Oh, I wish it was the case. It'd be a lot easier to identify and repent of. But no, idolatry is subtle. It begins at the level of the heart. It begins whenever we long for anything that God has forbidden. Or whenever we attach our happiness or our meaning or our security to anything other than God and His ways. This is why Paul says in our passage, think about it. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Listen, if we're going to heed this passage, we need to get serious about the desires of our hearts. We need to not just think, well, I haven't been unfaithful to my spouse. We need to beware of the lustful desires in our hearts. We need to not just think, well, I haven't lost my temper. We need to beware of angry thoughts in our hearts. We need to not just think, well, I haven't stolen anything or cheated on my taxes. We need to beware of a heart that somehow justifies not giving our tithes and offerings to God. We need to take heed to our heart's desires. Our heart's desires are what direct our actions. Our desires are what set our trajectory. And so what do we really need to do? We need to repent at the heart level. Brothers and sisters, take heed to this passage by repenting of your heart desires at a heart level. Do not be satisfied by mere outward lack of heinous sin in your life. Do not be satisfied with that. Paul says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold the new has come. You are in Christ, you're new. You are not what you were before you came to Christ. You are not enslaved to sinful thoughts and passions and pleasures. You are new. 
And so when sinful thoughts or pleasures begin to vie for attention and space in your heart, repent of them. Begin repenting of them before the Lord in prayer. I'd suggest bringing them to a trusted brother or sister or two. Confession is good for the soul. And then turn from them. Turn from them and turn back to Jesus as your Savior and as your lover. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you can do this with confidence. You can do this with confidence because no temptation has overtaken you but what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Finally, the last way to take heed this morning. Take heed to Christ. Remember in all of this, please remember in all of this, we are not saved by our obedience or by our purity of heart. We are saved by Jesus Christ. He is the only one who lived a life of purity. He is the only one who lived a life of purity of heart. He is the only one who worshipped God alone. He is the only one who took heed to all of God's words and God's ways. And he did so on our behalf. God knew we couldn't satisfy his righteous law. And so he sent Jesus to obey in our place. Not only that, to die in our place and to take the punishment of our idolatry upon himself. The good news of the gospel is that forgiveness, full, final, and free, is given to all who turn from their sin and trust in Christ. Everything that I'm talking about this morning is based on this. So, if you're sitting there and you're convicted of your sin and you know that your life is a mess and you're headed to hell, turn to Jesus Christ. Turn to Jesus Christ. Do not sit here and determine to do better. Mm. Sit here and determine that you will ask God to save you. Sit here and ask God to convict you of your sin. Sit here and ask God to grant you faith to believe in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that He is the answer to your guilt and shame. God's arms are open wide this morning through faith in Jesus Christ. It may be that some of you this morning have been coming to church for a long time. And maybe you know you're not a Christian. You've become accustomed to deadening your heart and not responding. Or maybe you think you're a Christian, but if you're honest, you look like Israel of old. In other words, you appear in some outward sense to be God's, but your life says you don't belong to God. 
Well, the answer for both of you is to turn to Jesus Christ. Come to Him. Run to Him and trust Him. He will forgive you of your unbelief. He will forgive you of your hard-heartedness. He will forgive you of your lust, of your anger, of your pride, of your idolatry for everything. He is a gracious Savior sent by a gracious Father to bring a gracious redemption to all who turn and trust in Him. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you'd grant us ears to hear your word and to respond this morning. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for graciously warning us. Thank you for being a good father who tells us hard things at times because you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.